morning we're going to look at verses 1 through 7, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Paul writes to his young child in the faith, he says, Timothy, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the saying is trustworthy, it's the second time he has said that. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Father, would you bless the reading and the preaching of your word? Would you help me to be this kind of man? Would you help our other pastors to be these kinds of men? And would you raise up for the future of this church other pastors, other overseers, other elders who can lead your church well? For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The early church leader, Tertullian, saw the root of most heresy in his day as being rooted in philosophy, Greek philosophy. And so he famously was asking the question rhetorically in some of his writings, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? His point was, if, if heresy is rooted in Greco-Roman philosophy, then why would Christianity want to have anything to do with it, with its thought patterns or with its worldview? What has Athens to do with Jerusalem? The two are very distinct. The two are very separate. They don't really have anything to do with one another. He went on, what has the academy, meaning the seed of rigorous learning and intellectual thought, what has it to do with the church? The church is just supposed to be about God's business. And then he said, and what have heretics to do with Christians? There should be such a a distinct and, and dichotomized model between these realities that really the twain should never meet. And so it often is the case when we come to a passage like this and we begin using words like overseers or elders All of the Baptists say, what have elders and overseers to do with Baptists? 
Those two worlds don't seem to really have anything to do with one another. And anytime I have heard those words mentioned around Baptist churches, usually there's just trouble. Paul is not just writing an up-to-date church manual. He's writing to Timothy because Timothy is needing to deal with false teaching that's happening in the church at Ephesus. There were leaders that were teaching wrong things and displaying many characteristics that Paul would consider inappropriate for a leader of Christ's church. He had gathered with these elders in Acts chapter 20 and he had loved on them and and cared for them and given them his, his final sermon in saying, don't let this danger come in among you. Don't let these divisions come. Don't let false teaching erupt within the church. Hold true. Watch your life. Watch your doctrine. He's going to tell Timothy that in just a few short verses. Paul is laying out in this chapter qualifications for the kind of men that should be leading Christ's church. It's interesting, I was telling the pastors this week that by and large, I think, I could be wrong, but I haven't heard too much pushback from last week's sermon. But as I prepared that sermon in our cultural milieu, I began to think, I wonder how this will land on our people when we affirm what we've always affirmed, that we don't really believe that women should preach the word of God publicly and that they shouldn't be pastors. Will this be controversial at First Baptist? Will this be something that our people in this cultural moment will say, well, I'm just not sure we think or feel that way anymore And as odd as it may sound, the further that I've walked through the text this week, I realize that it's probably a text like this that we're more likely to have our rebuttals against or stand against than last week's text. We would be more concerned with the language of elders and overseers in a Baptist church than we would with a woman preaching. We know that's not going to take place. So what is Paul trying to give us here in these little seven verses? I want to do much like I did last week, although there will be notes for you this morning. I want to give you four things that I think that we can track through this passage of Scripture. And then I want to give you the most common rebuttals when we begin to think through a text like this. The first thing that we see in the text this morning is the desire of the elder. The desire of the elder. Pastors, elders, we'll come back to what those words mean in just a few minutes, but They should have a desire. They should have a desire for the work. We we so often in our churches and in our seminaries speak singly about the language of calling. That there must be some calling. And I believe that we can find throughout the Old and New Testament both an internal call that God wrestles with a man that, he, that he's calling to, to be in his service, and we can see that affirmed in the New Testament. And there's also what we know as an external call where the church of God looks at both the giftedness and the character of a man and deems whether or not he is fit for that service. And so we'll often speak about that internal call and that external call. And that internal call is often wrongly misinterpreted as some audible moment where the living God steps into a young man's life and calls him to be a pastor. We don't all have that kind of moment. I can point you to 
a moment in the Yoakum Hall dorm room at the University of Arkansas 20 years ago tomorrow when beyond a shadow of a doubt I feel that the Lord called me into ministry. But more than anything, what he was doing in my life in that moment was causing me to wrestle with the reality that I had a desire for the work. I had a compulsion. I had an earnestness that had been set in my life and I didn't feel that I would have joy doing anything else other than serving the Lord. And so this desire, this aspiration that verse one speaks of could simply be defined as this, a desire for or a heart that is set on God's glory through the duty and work of pastoral ministry. A desire for or a heart that is set on an aspiration, a yearning for, a longing for. It will later be used in the same book here as a craving for God's glory to be seen and manifested and displayed and realized through the duty and work of gospel ministry, of pastoral ministry. And Paul is simply telling Timothy, if a man in the church desires this work, then he's desiring a noble thing. He's desiring a noble task. Which I think the application of this verse should be very easy. In our churches, we should pray for and long for and encourage and support and undergird with our prayers and with our lives and with our finances every young man who believes that he may feel called to pastoral ministry in any way. And we should not begin to give him all the reasons that he shouldn't be a passionate, a pastor or shouldn't be a missionary or shouldn't be a theologian. But the greatest thing that the church can do is look to its children's ministries and its youth ministries and pray that God raises up a sea of young men who will go out into pastoral ministry. Just this past week in First Baptist Church of Rogers, Arkansas, they laid to rest Brother Tommy Henson at the age of 90. Brother Tommy Henson was the pastor of First Baptist Church, West Memphis, Arkansas, for 35 years. He was my boyhood pastor, and as he began to decline in recent weeks, several people from our church began to put on Facebook, we need to pray for him and pray for his wife and pray for his family, and someone began listing out all of the men who have been called to ministry from the time that he was a pastor at First Baptist Church of West Memphis. And there are pastors all over the United States, all over the world, because of the direct ministry of Tommy Henson. Oh, that that would be our prayer here. That we wouldn't stifle the calling, that we wouldn't stifle the desire, but we would encourage it. And we would support our young men to be pastors above everything else. The second thing that we see in this text is we see the disposition of the elder. The disposition of the elder. And by the word disposition, it's just me as a Baptist pastor using alliteration. I just mean character, the character, the heart, the attitude of the elders, of the pastors of the church. John Chrysostom, an early church leader, said this. When Paul writes that the overseer, verse 2, must be above reproach, he says every virtue is implied in this word. In fact, many scholars have looked at verse 2 and verse 7, if you'll just glance down there quickly, where it says that the man must be well thought of by outsiders 
so that he doesn't fall into a temptation from the devil, so he doesn't fall into a snare. And they see these as bookends above reproach and being well thought of by the world and by the church as catch-all bookend terms to, to squeeze together the meat of this passage which describes the character of the man's life. And I wish we had time to walk through this list and to spend several minutes on each of these attributes because they're so rich. There's different ways to divide them up. He basically begins by giving seven positive attributes and then he gives four negative attributes and then he ends with three other qualifications or characteristics. I've simply divided them up in this way. The, the positive ones first and then the negative ones. All right, and so we're going to track through the different verses of Scripture, and I just want to mention these to you quickly this morning. First, the Bible says that in addition to being above reproach, I think what is distinguished here or what's being lined out in these next few verses is really just an explication of what above reproach means. First, that he must be the husband of one wife. There's a lot of language. There's a lot of controversy about this verse and what it means, this text. Because for a long time within our churches, it has, mean, it has meant that any man who's been divorced cannot serve as a pastor. Any man who's been divorced cannot serve as an elder, cannot serve as a deacon. So many of these same qualifications are going to be listed for deacons. And so if you start to have questions about how these two things intertwine or overlap, just come again next week as we look to next week's text, which deals specifically with the role of deacons in the church and we'll be ordaining three new deacons into our church here at First Baptist Covington. But the language literally is that he is a one-woman man. That, that he is a type of man that belongs to one woman. And so in many more recent years, scholars have put a lot more work and I believe a lot more right thinking into this text. And believe that it is most aptly translated simply to mean faithful. A faithful husband. There are those whose wives were lost and they had second marriages. There were those who didn't even become a believer uh, until later in life. And then the Lord calls them uh, into some act of service uh, after a time of which perhaps they've already been divorced. Not only in the ancient day, but in our current day. And so I do not believe that this text precludes or excludes any man who's been divorced from serving in this capacity, I simply think it means the person that he's married to now, he better be faithful to. He better be a faithful man. He shouldn't be a polygamist. He shouldn't be promiscuous. He shouldn't be an adulterer. He shouldn't be flirtatious. He should have a singular eye for his wife and he should be faithful to her. The husband of one wife. He goes on to say that he should be sober-minded, that he should be a clear thinker, that's literally what this means, that, that his judgment, that his heart, that his mind, that his will should not be clouded by the world and certainly not by foreign substances. He's not talking about alcohol here, but that's the image that we get, that the life isn't controlled by anything else other than clear thinking that is guided and directed by the word of God. That the man of God would be self-controlled that he would be able to resist temptation, that he would be self-controlled in his life, that he would be disciplined, that he'd be thoughtful with his tongue, with his finances, with the, the, the behavior and the discipline of his children, with his own health. So many different things that we could point to in this verse of being self-controlled. That he should be respectable. 
that he should be respectable. I've known some men, I've known some men who were in leadership of the church, both as pastors and as deacons, who were not very respectable, either inside or outside the church. Like, how do they ever get to be in that position when they can't even be respected on just a basic level of life? That they should be respectable men, that they should be hospitable men, that they should be warm Not that they must be extroverted and outgoing, but that they must be warm, that they must be affectionate, that they must care, that they must have compassion, that they must be able to get into other people's lives and welcome other people into their lives, that their their lives should be opened up, their homes should be opened up, their minds and hearts should be opened up to show gospel hospitality to those inside and outside the church, that he should be a man of good reputation. Again, so many of these things just sound like they're synonyms, further explanations of a previous word, parallel thoughts that Paul is just remarking to Timothy, remember that the men of God should be these things. They should have a good reputation. And then he moves on, that he should not be a drunkard, that he should not be someone who is under the intoxication of worldly substances, whatever they may be. When Paul will write to the church of Ephesus and he'll remind them that they're not to be drunk with wine but be filled with the Spirit, the the point is that he's not trying to make a prohibition against alcohol. The, The prohibition that he's giving is that your life should not be controlled by a foreign substance. Your your life should be controlled by the Spirit. When you're drunk You don't know what you're thinking, you don't know what you're saying, you don't know what you're doing, but when you're controlled by the Spirit, it is the very Spirit of the risen Christ that is guiding your thought, and it's guiding your will, and it's guiding your mouth, and so he says the man of God first should be self-controlled, and then he makes very clear, he should not be a drunkard, he should not be violent, he should be gentle. I can think of one pastor of another church that I knew back in my boyhood, he, he was... He was one of the most angry people I've ever been around. Just such a temper. And, and again, I often wondered, like, how do you get to be in that position when your, your life is not gentle? Your words and your actions are angry and perhaps even violent. That the man of God should not be quarrelsome. That he shouldn't be argumentative. That he shouldn't be someone that's always seeking a debate and always having to prove himself right. That he should not be a lover of money. That he should not be in it for financial gain. Now, again, that may seem odd in our day, but throughout history, even in the first century, there were already those who were beginning to use the ministry for their own financial gain, for their own sordid ways, for their own pleasures. And certainly we know in our world, especially in light of a prosperity gospel that is preached by millionaire TV pastors, that there are some who peddle the gospel. They're charlatans. They're in it for financial gain. They're lovers of money. We may, especially in our context, have grown up in small little churches where the pastor had to have multiple jobs, or we we may understand that, you know, we, we don't pay pastors a whole lot to get rich. And so we may think, is that, is that really a desire? The first thing that my pastor ever told me when I told him I felt like the Lord was calling me to ministry is he said, there's three things that you need to watch out for, that, that you don't become power hungry, woman hungry, or money hungry. 
And I remember thinking even then, like, money hungry in the ministry? One of the things that I think the enemy knew and that God knows is that every man's the same. Every man has a sinful heart. Every man faces the same temptations. We don't have a certain set of temptations that go away when we enter gospel ministry. And so Paul is making very clear to Timothy, make sure that the men who are leading Christ church don't love money. And then if you skip down to verse number six, he says that they should not be a recent convert. You shouldn't be a new believer. They need to have some maturity. They need to know the word of God. They need to have some growth in their life. We could say a whole lot more about these attributes. The third thing that we see from the text this morning is the duty of the elder. The duty of the elder. Have you noticed anything about the attitudes or character that have been mentioned so far? Faithful to your spouse, sober-minded, self-control, respectable, hospitable, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Don't those just sound like basic qualities of faithfulness and obedience that should be present in the life of every Christian man? And every Christian woman? And so what distinguishes then an elder, an overseer, a pastor from a normal church member? Well, the, the desire and the duties. The duties are very simply listed in this text. The first word that's used in verse number one is the word overseer. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. It's where we get our word episcopal from. It's the word that is literally could be translated bishop. Now, most of our modern translations don't use the word bishop. And we certainly don't use the word bishop in Baptist churches, but that's the word. And the idea and the duty that is being connoted here in this text is that there is spiritual oversight for Christ's church that is carried out by these men of God. They oversee the work of the ministry. They oversee the spiritual lives of their congregants. They oversee the ministry of preaching. They oversee the ministry of the word in a public and a private context. They oversee and they overlook and they shepherd over every attribute and every characteristic that's happening as it relates to the spirituality of, of God's people within the local body of Christ. The language implies to watch over to look after, to care for. The duty is to defend. The duty is to protect from both outside danger and inside danger. Again, this is, you could just go back, and we don't have time to this morning, but you could just go back to Acts 20. In fact, I commend you. That's your homework. Go back to Acts 20 this week and just read over Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders at the port of Miletus and just read what he tells them. And read how he's arguing with them. There's going to be danger outside and inside. I'll never forget one of my uh, seminary professors describing the, the work of the shepherd, of the overseer. And he said, in our day, so often we think about shepherds as just being these cuddly little figures that have these cute little sheep 
out in the field and, and they've got this nice little staff and they can just kind of pull the, pull the sheep in and, and just kind of rub on its soft wool. Isn't that a pretty picture? Like nothing's further from the truth of the reality of what a shepherd did. Someone that oversaw the sheep had to oversee animals that weren't very smart. Animals that often got themselves in trouble. And they had to protect them, their, their animals and their flock from outside dangers and inside dangers. They had to be able to go and rescue and use the crook of the shepherd's staff to rescue sheep and bring them back within the fold. But they also had to be able to take that shepherd's staff like David and knock the teeth out of the wolves that would try to harm the sheep. Pastors have to be tough. They've got to be thick-skinned. They've got to be courageous. They've got to be bold. They've got to be willing to knock the teeth out of the predator. And they've got to be willing sometime to, to knock the head of the sheep itself when it's going astray. They've got to be able to oversee Christ's church. Second... In verse number two, he says that they must be able to teach. We'll talk some about this next week, but this is the only duty or really the only characteristic that distinguishes the pastor and the elder from the deacon. Doesn't mean that deacons can't teach in the church, but if someone's going to be an overseer, if someone's going to be a pastor in the church, they must have the gift of being able to teach the word of God. The word is not preach. The word is teach. And I believe the teaching of God's word implies throughout the New Testament both the public declaration of God's word and the private counsel and ministry of God's word. That the men of God should be able to open up the word of God and they should be able to sit in front of people and rightly divide the word of truth. And they must be able to take one sheep and sit at a table over coffee and counsel them and teach them from God's word. They must have the gift to be able to do that. The third is that they must be able to lead. They must be able to manage. The Bible says here in these middle verses that he must, verse 4, manage his own household well. That he must keep his children submissive. That his house should be a dignified house. Again, people will come to a text like this and they'll interpret it literally. Does that mean that a pastor has to be married? And does that mean that a pastor, if he's going to be the husband of one wife, does that mean an elder or a pastor has to be married? And does he have to have children? No. Much like the marriage text, it's simply saying that if he does, his household better be in order. And then Paul gives, oddly enough, he's got all these qualifications that he just lists, bullet point, one right after the other. But right here, he slows down and he says, because if he can't take care of his own house, how will he be able to manage and lead God's church? He gives this parenthetical question, this digression to Timothy to give to the church. If he's got the gift of leadership and he's got the gift of management in some kind of corporate sense or worldly sense, but his wife and his kids are out of control and rebellious, then he shouldn't be a pastor. He shouldn't be an elder. And we have, in so many of our churches, replaced biblical qualifications for pastors and elders for people who can lead well and manage things well. And so the ministry has in many churches become professionalized CEO leaders of churches. 
A Japanese businessman was once asked by an Australian gentleman what he uh, observed when he went among America's churches. He often traveled to America. He was a Buddhist man, and he was often asked what the difference was in the leadership of uh, Buddhism and Christian churches. And he famously remarked, whenever I meet a Buddhist leader, I meet a holy man, holy by their standards. Whenever I meet a Christian leader, I simply meet a manager. One of the things that Paul is trying to argue for and against in this text is that the elder pastor overseer in Christ's church must be a holy man. He must strive for holiness. He must desire it. It does not mean above reproach. It certainly implies holiness. It does not mean in any of these characteristics that he is perfect. He will fall. He will sin. I will fall. I will sin against my wife, against my kids, against you. But the overall trajectory and aim of his life and of his heart should be a desire for godliness. And someone who's quick to repent and who recognizes his sin and who will confess it and who will be made right once again with God so that he can, to the best of his ability and by God's grace, stand in front of God's people and through the power of the Spirit of Christ be able to present the word of God again. It's no easy task. It's no easy task. The fourth thing we see is the danger for the elder. <clears throat> the danger for the elder. Right at the end of the text, he says, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. I think that the language there is implying pride. The danger for the elder is the, the private danger of pride. And pride is the killer of most men. Pride may manifest itself in many different ways, but this this internal private danger of pride is something that Paul is arguing that Timothy must make sure the elders are fighting against. And then second, as he ends this text, he says he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace. There are snares and there are traps and there are temptations that the world and that those outside the church would try to give to the men within the church. And he says there, there is a public danger of disgrace. The private danger of pride and the public danger of disgrace. And so friends, I know that that's a lot in a short amount of time, but very simply, I could sum it all up and simply conclude with, would you pray for me? Would you pray for our other pastors? Would you understand the high calling that it is to serve God in his church? I see y'all putting your notes away. We're not finished. <laughs> because the rebuttal comes, well, we don't use the word elder. We don't do that in our churches. We don't use that word. The words that are used in the New Testament are the words elder, overseer, and pastor. The, the first word, elder, is where we get our word Presbyterian from. It's the word presbyteros. The word overseer is the word that I've already mentioned, the word bishop that's used in this text, which is where we get our word for episcopal. And so even with those first two words, we're already trembling, right? There's episcopacy and, and bishoprics, and there's Presbyterianism, and we don't do that. 
We have pastors in our churches. The word pastor used as a noun is only used one time in the New Testament. Ephesians 4.13, when it describes the the role of the pastor and teacher, it's a a role that the language is combined there uh, in, in one, two words to describe one thing. But throughout the New Testament, and I don't have time to take us through all the texts, but throughout the New Testament, these three words are used synonymously. They're used interchangeably. And Acts chapter 20, the text that I've already given to you for homework, is the best place that you can go to see why this is true. Because Paul has summoned the elders, the book of Acts says, and he gathers with them at Miletus, and he begins giving his farewell speech, and he reminds them of their calling to oversee the church, the language of episkopos, And throughout that verse and throughout that chapter, he's describing how they must continue to shepherd poiemen, pastor the flock of God. Three words in one passage that describe the same role of leadership within Christ's church. You could open to the book of Philippians, you could open any other of Paul's letters, and you can read over and over and over again the interchangeable use of these words. It is only to be distinguished from one other office in the New Testament, the office of deacon. There are two offices in the New Testament, the office of pastor or elder or overseer and the office of deacon. So you can use whatever word you want, but the office is the same. The description and duties are the same. The verb for pastoring or shepherding is used many more times in the New Testament. But we use, isn't it interesting that we use the word or the title in our day that is less frequently used than any other word in the New Testament? The second rebuttal comes, well, we, we have a pastor. We have a pastor. Yeah, we'll pray for you. You told us to. We have a pastor. We don't need to talk about an elder or an overseer because we have a pastor. The reality is we should have more. Well, we do have more. We have more than you. We have other pastors. And there should always be multiple pastors. When it is possible and when the church is able, in every church, there should be a plurality of pastors. Whether they've been to seminary or not. Whether they are paid or not. There should always be a multiplicity of men called by the Lord and the church to serve the church by giving spiritual direction and teaching and oversight to the body. Pastor, are you saying that there should be men within our churches who don't go to seminary, who don't have degrees, who should be pastors like you and like the other pastors that we pay? That's exactly what I'm saying. Shared leadership has the benefit of balancing people's weaknesses, of lightening the workload, of providing accountability. Just this week, I talked to a dear friend of mine who's in a church where some really hard decisions had to be made. They have one paid pastor. They have one senior pastor. They have one lead pastor. But they have multiple elders or other pastors within the church that are helping give spiritual direction and oversight within the church. When those decisions were made and were put in front of the church, guess who got all of the criticism? 
Guess who got all of the complaints? The pastor. Guess who made the decisions? The pastors. The elders. A plurality of pastors shares the responsibility, it shares the accountability, it lightens the workload. And throughout the New Testament, as I have argued with you and and in front of you before, there is no other way to understand the New Testament than that in every church there is a plurality of elders. There's several lines of biblical evidence for this. The book of James, there is a blanket statement applied to the church generally where James simply assumes that every church will have plural elders, pastors, overseers to pray for the sick in that church. The book of Acts seems to indicate that Paul's regular practice was to appoint elders, pastors, overseers in all of the churches that he planted. After his first missionary journey, Acts 14, he says, And when they had appointed elders, plural, in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Paul commanded Titus, Titus 1.5, to appoint elders in every city. Peter spoke of the responsibility of shepherding the flock of God as belonging to the elders, plural. 1 Peter 5, verses 1 and 2. There is not one instance in the entire New Testament where there is not a plurality of elders. In every case, the reference is in the plural. The third, since you're probably now troubled. Well, well, it's just not Baptist. It's almost as if we're saying when we say that, well, we don't really care what the Bible says. It's not Baptist. And to say that is intellectually dishonest and historically ignorant. W.B. Johnson wrote, in review of these scriptures, we have these points clearly made. One, that over each church in the New Testament era, a plurality of pastors and elders were ordained uh, who were designated by the terms elders, bishop, overseer, pastor, with the authority of the government of the flock of God. Second, this authority involved no legislative power, but was ministerial and executive in its exercises, and the rulers were not to lord over the church, but to be an example for them. Third, the duties of these elders consisted in taking heed generally to shepherd among the flock. Fourth, while all of these elders are laboring in the word and in the doctrine, only some may be devoted to the preaching to the people. Fifth, that great responsibility rested upon these elders, for they watched over the cares of their souls. Sixth, these elders, these pastors, these overseers were equal in rank and authority, not one having any preeminence over the rest. Seven, these elders, pastors, bishops, overseers were made so by the church and by the Holy Spirit, the congregation having given charge to these men over them. And eight, the members of the flock are required by God's word to imitate the faith of these pastors, overseers, and elders. You say, well, who is W.B. Johnson? Well, he was the first president of the Southern Baptist Convention in 1845. Is this Baptist? Just because you may have never seen it done right or in a biblical fashion doesn't mean that it's not Baptist. 1644, the first London Confession, churches can choose for themselves pastors, teachers, elders, deacons being qualified according to the word of God. 
1677, the second line of confession, the church officers made by the members are to be the bishops or elders and deacons. The Baptist Faith and Message, 1963, the scriptural offices are pastors and deacons. Scriptural offices in Baptist Faith and Message 2000, pastors and deacons. The language began very early on in Baptist life with elders. The language changed later in Baptist life simply to use the word pastors because it does distinguish us from other denominations that have a, a, a congregation uh, that is ruled or governed in ways that we would not think is biblical. Most of you probably have never even heard the name Elder Joel Colley. He's the first pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church which, which became First Baptist Covington in 1823. And they called him elder. Well, but you don't have any proof that early in Baptist life that they were making other men pastors or elders that weren't trained, that weren't educated, that weren't paid. 1738, the Philadelphia Association recognized among Baptist churches the need for both non-paid and non-staff pastors. Is the concept of elders Baptist? You may not think it is, but the history of our Baptist churches proves very different. In fact, it's only been, although the argument is made often in our day that it's only been within these last few years that Baptist churches have started using elders. I don't know. Actually, it's only been within the last 50 years that the deacons began to assume the mantle of leadership over Christ's church when the previous 250 years of Baptist history before it showed something completely different. Is the concept of elders Baptist? You may not think it is, but the concept of elders is certainly biblical. And so forth. Well, it just takes away from deacons in the congregation. It just takes away from deacons in the congregation. No, it doesn't. I'm not arguing for an elder-ruled church, as in Presbyterianism. I'm not arguing for an, a system of government whereby external men from the church, like in Presbyterianism, have any say what's going on in our church. What I'm arguing for is a biblical and historical model of multiple men being raised up within the church, some who are paid, some who are not paid, who are able to teach, who fit all the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, who will lead the church. The church will be served by the deacons, and the congregation will still have final say over ruling and governing as it relates to issue of membership, of discipline, of officers, of leadership, of mission, of vision, of budget. Those are all things that historically Baptist churches have put into the hands of the congregation even when they are pastor or elder-led churches. Yes, friends, yes. You may look at our church and you may say, we've got six pastors, we've got a plurality of pastors, that's, that's fine and dandy. We're doing what you've said is outlined in the Bible. And there's a sense in which that is true. There's a sense in which functionally on a day-to-day -day level that is true. Our six paid pastors or seven paid pastors try to carry on the, the burden of spiritual oversight and leadership in Christ church here. And we do the best that we possibly can. And there are a lot of men in this church who are qualified to be elders, qualified to be pastors, qualified to give spiritual leadership and guidance and oversight within this church who cannot 
because they don't have that title. And for a long time in our Baptist churches, there have been many men who've been given a lot of authority and power and leadership within Christ church, primarily as deacons that the Bible never intended for them to have. And it is long past time that we in our churches begin to get it right. What are you saying, Pastor? Are we rewriting our Constitution and bylaws this morning? No. And I don't know that we will anytime soon. What we will do is wrestle with God's Word. I can't do anything other than preach God's Word and hold in front of you what it says. And if you want to make an argument against anything that we've said this morning, then the burden of proof's on you. We need men within the church who will be raised up. They'll care more about theology. They'll care more about doctrine. They'll care more about the word of God. They'll care more about the spiritual well-being of the people within the flock of God. We need men beyond just those who are seminary trained. Because the reality is, friend, this is one of the reasons that you should want other men within the church to be pastors and elders in this church. The reality is that the six or seven of us that are going to be here are only going to be here on average three to five years. And then we'll be off to the next place. Don't you want the direction and spiritual leadership and oversight of the flock of God and the shepherding of the people of God to be carried out also by the men who are in your lives and have been for decades who fit these qualifications? Let's pray for God to have his will in our church. For we ask these things in Christ's name. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning and we ask that you would help us see your word clearly, that we would see it rightly, that we would understand how we have so often gotten things out of line. And would you just press upon our hearts and our minds <clears throat> to make it right in your time, in the right way, with the application of your word and your will here in our midst that we would see these things come to fruition in reality, that you would raise up elders, pastors, overseers here among us. I thank you for every man who serves this church, every pastor, every deacon. I thank you for their faithfulness, for their character, for their ability to serve and teach and lead for all the many things that they've done. And I pray that you just continue to lead us in accordance with your word. For we pray these things in Christ's name, amen.